This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I was joined by Nick Fike. Nick is a journalist and former editor of The Monthly magazine, and he joined me to talk about how federal Australian climate policy has been reverse-engineered to protect the interests of the fossil fuel industry. He takes us through the issues with Labor's climate policy and the details of the safeguard mechanism and the role of offsets. After negotiations between Labor and the Greens, what do the new amendments to the Safeguard Mechanism Bill really mean for this policy? Are they actually improvements? And how will it work in practice? You can read his piece in full for the monthly. It's called The Great Stock and Coal Swindle. Then, I was joined by composer and contemporary classical pianist Sophie Hutchings, as well as float founder and Piano Day organiser Sophia Ilias. They both join me to discuss Piano Day, which is Wednesday the 29th of March this year. Piano Day is an annual worldwide celebration of the piano held on the 88th day of the year in reference to the 88 keys on a standard piano. Sophia explains the origins of Piano Day, while Sophie tells us about her process for composing piano works and recently how she reworked a piece by Oliver Arnolds. They both reflect on their favourite pianists and the role of Piano Day in engaging the local community in Melbourne as well as the global community. A special event will be held and hosted by Float at Tempo Rubato in Brunswick on Sunday the 2nd of April, featuring Sophie Hutchings, Grace Ferguson and Evelyn Ida Morris. Finally, I was joined by Guardian Australia environment reporter Graham Redfern. Graham joined me for a roundup of the latest environment reporting that he's been doing. He talks about recent studies which have shown that half of New South Wales forests have been lost since 1750 and a concerning marine study about the decline of species of fish, seaweed, coral and invertebrates around reefs in Australia. He also explained what was behind the latest mass fish kills in New South Wales, as well as the concerning invasive plant disease myrtle rust and its reappearance on Lord Howe Island. You are tuned in to 3 Triple R FM. This show is Uncommon Sense and my name is Amy Mullins and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome back onto the show Nick Fike, who is a journalist. He is former editor of The Monthly Magazine and Nick has written a fabulous piece for The Monthly in the March edition. It is all about Labor's, and I'm talking about federal Labor's, climate policy. And, of course, we're going to go into the details of that, but it involves something called offsetting and, of course, something you've also probably heard of nonstop for weeks, which was the safeguard mechanism. And it does kind of make your eyes water when you hear a word that sounds so very technical and doesn't seem to explain itself in its title. But Nick is going to explain what this safeguard mechanism is, what it was proposed to be by Labor up until very recently, and now what the negotiated outcome is between the Labor Party and the federal Greens, and whether it does enough to improve the policy and the bill. Um, So there's a lot to cover, 
and I'm really pleased to welcome Nick, who will be discussing this fabulous piece, The Great Stock and Coal Swindle, as published in The Monthly. Hi there, Nick, and thank you so much for coming back onto the program. Hi, Amy. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Yeah, well, it's funny. I was just thinking back to our last chat, which was all about, as far as I recall, Scott Morrison's multiple ministries and the uh, implications of it. And gosh, that was a fun chat. Yeah, well, it seems like we're still dealing to some extent with Scott Morrison's legacy because the, the, the you know, the safeguard mechanism uh, really originated with with his government. Uh, at least the, the the bones of it um, were coalition and and. Angus Taylor and Scott Morrison tweaked it a little bit, and then uh, Labor sort of has been working with that as its climate policy, which, uh, as you rightly noted, has, has all come to a head this month. Mm-mm. It's certainly a really interesting history, and you take us through a whole range of elements of climate policy history as well as the safeguard mechanism history. Um, and we'll we'll jump into the safeguard mechanism in a minute, but I did want to start where your piece starts because it does set the scene quite beautifully and remind us of some of the proclamations we've heard from our politicians, the policy approach we've also heard, which is net zero by 2050. And uh, I guess placing that into context um, around Labor's current position as well and um, their essential desire to push on with new gas and coal mine projects. So would you mind taking us through the very beginning of your piece where you're outlining to us and setting the scene as to Australia's climate policy as it has been, as you say, in the last um, eight or so bleak years of coalition denialism and intransigence? Yeah, so... I guess the place for me to start is with the election of this new government, as in, like you say, after many, many years, uh, a new government, the Albanese government's voted in on the back of its promises for proper climate action for once, um, you know, for the first time in years. Uh, I think every Australian who, you know, has half a brain realises that climate change is an issue that needs to be addressed. The coalition had done nothing, absolutely nothing for, for years. And the government gets in and says, we're going to introduce a, a 43% uh, legislated target uh, and we're going to tighten up the safeguard mechanism policy that the coalition had introduced, but which had led to only a rise in emissions from the big industrial emitters. Uh, so there was this moment of great optimism that finally Australia was back on track. Quietly in the background, the Labor Party, the Labor government, is encouraging uh, the development of lots of lots of new gas gas and coal, but, but mostly gas fields. So the Scarborough plant off Western Australia was basically promoted. It was almost the first thing that the new energy minister, Madeleine King, did uh, when she when she got into, when she was sworn in as minister, was say, don't panic, everyone. The big gas projects are still going ahead. Labor's fully behind it. Um, so representatives of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet 
fronted up at Senate estimates, and they were asked about the this uh, about the gas problems, the price of gas, etc. And they said, well, the way that we're dealing with it is that we're going to extract more and more gas. We're going to export it. There's going to be heaps of gas. We're pursuing as much of it as we possibly can. Now, to any thinking person, you think, well. The, the huge expansion of gas production in Australia is inconsistent with what the science says needs to be done. Now, the, the deeper I looked into this stuff, the worse it got. So the Labor government is trying to push this line that somehow emissions that are produced in Australia from the likes of Scarborough and all of the, the gas fields if they're exported and burned overseas, then it's no big deal for us, as in it doesn't affect our emissions. So on the one hand, they're saying we're going to cut Australia's emissions. On the other hand, we're exporting so much gas that we're adding to the global problem immensely. Uh, and there's a hugely complicated sort of policy mechanism that's being built up, which will essentially allow Australian gas companies to keep expanding and keep exporting. Um, so, you know, I, I delved very deeply into what's behind the safeguard mechanism. And, you know, the more that I looked, the uglier I felt that it got. Yeah, it's, it's kind of horrifying when you're reading it. Your eyes are widening more and more. <laughs> and I can kind of see that you've the, gone down a rabbit hole here. I know. And the thing is that the moment that you say safeguard mechanism and carbon offsets, people's eyes do glaze over mm. because it really is so complicated. You need so much kind of information at hand to 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 be able to judge whether offsets are actually working, etc. So, I guess for, for listeners, basically, uh, I'll try and give the shorthand version of this. But essentially. What the safeguard mechanism that was introduced by the coalition and has since been pursued by the Labor government, what the safeguard mechanism says is you don't actually have to cut your emissions. You just need to buy a credit which offsets that same emission. So one tonne of, of carbon emissions or equivalent emissions can be offset by one carbon credit. And the way that we generate these carbon credits is that people have gone to farmers, they've gone to other sorts of essentially carbon aggregating companies, and they say, well, if you don't cut down this forest, you'll get a carbon credit. Or if you move cattle from one piece of land to another piece of land, we're going to assume that that land has regenerated and here's a carbon credit. So, and the more that you look into these carbon credit generating methods, uh, the more dodgy they seem. I mean, apart from the fact that when you saw carbon in trees, you're not storing it like you would, like it's been stored in coal under the ground for, you know, for millennia. Uh, if a tree burns down or if it dies because, you know, it's too dry or you've lost that carbon credit, in, you've, lo you've lost that, uh, that gain, essentially. Uh, but when it comes down to it, what the government decided was that rather than ask all of the, rather than require that the biggest polluters actually cut their pollute, 
their pollution. They could just buy their way out of the problem. Now, the people who've looked into the carbon offsets systems around the world, not just in Australia, but around the world, these things are dogged with controversy. They, you know, the, the, the best numbers that I've seen is that 80 to 90% of almost all of the biggest programs are generating illegitimate credits. And I can kind of understand how the system works. It's what essentially the carbon crediting system it purports to do is find the cheapest possible abatement method. Now, the cheapest way of, of doing anything is doing nothing. Mm. Uh, so not cutting down a tree is somehow an abatement method. I mean, how, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that you're not actually helping the situation if you're not doing anything. Uh, and there's so many of these things, you know, and across the globe, you know, people are buying up segments of forests in PNG or they're trying, they're pretending to plant trees in, in Central Africa. So many of these things are just running unchecked because it's very easy for fossil fuel companies to get behind these things and put money into them and, uh, and to write off their own obligations. So this is essentially the system as it was designed and was, and was presented to the Greens recently. Mm. Is it any wonder they had issues with it? Um, one thing that struck me in your discussion of, uh, of carbon credits and offsets is that, of course, it's understandable that uh, the polluters would buy into this, that many politicians would buy into it, but you also say that even some environmental groups have bought into it. And anecdotally, I have come across that myself, where I've found myself arguing about offsets and carbon credits with someone I didn't expect to. So could you explain that to me, why it's not only kind of captured the imagination of you know the likely suspects, but also some of the unlikely suspects? Yeah, it's look, it's a it, it's a pretty tawdry sort of situation actually. The it's it's a hard thing to to explain, but I feel like there's a whole segment of uh, the environmental community that decided at some point that uh, that the market would have to be involved in any environmental solution, as in I think there's a whole sort of generation of environmentalists and people who got into NGOs thinking that they were, you know, doing good things, uh, who thought that the government's not just going to be able to strong-arm pollution, you know, fossil fuel companies into cutting their emissions. Uh, essentially, the market is going to have to be involved in any solutions. Uh, at the same time, uh, people who are modelling climate change outcomes in terms of like degrees and emissions tonnage uh, realise that we'd have to be drawing down emissions from the air. So at, at some point, people talked about carbon sequestration uh, because we were going to overshoot the targets, basically. We weren't, we weren't cutting emissions fast enough. We'd have to also draw down carbon from the atmosphere. And so one way of doing that is through planting trees and drawing it down into the earth. So this became, you know, for, for a good decade or so, this became 
an idea that took over the environmental movement, that you didn't just have to cut, you also needed to abate. Somehow over, over the years, this became, well, in particular in Australia, the idea of abatement and drawing down things became the only game in town. Uh, as far as environmental groups went, um, suddenly it meant that for the preservation um, of certain land, they could actually make a profit from it. So the Nature Conservancy and Pew and these sorts of organisations, WWF even, um, some of them actually had investment in land and they realised that if they regenerated that land, they could actually make money from it. They could get generate credits from it, kind of not realising that if those credits were sold to fossil fuel companies, you were doing more harm than good. But over the years... Um, this idea that you could somehow uh, invest in nature regeneration and you could invest in natural assets and that this would be good for the environment became a central part of uh, the ideology of the management structures of these big NGOs. So a lot of the philanthropic community suddenly was interested in doing good for the environment and it just so happened that they could make a little bit of money on the side. And so there's a lot of people um, on the boards of the likes of, you know, the Climate Council, WWF, who, who on in their other jobs have investment companies, you know, whether it's through Macquarie or Ernst & Young or, you know, various sort of private capital groups who are investing in uh, natural assets management, which is the new sort of investment class that's been created around the likes of uh, carbon offsets. So you'll also be hearing a lot more in the future about biodiversity offsets, which is where people, um, in, for in, you know, in return for developing a piece of land slash cutting down some forests, they're actually investing in biodiversity offsets elsewhere. So again, there's an asset class, there are investments to be made, there's money to be made, and you know, there's a certain group of people who think that this is the way that we're going to you know, solve our environmental problems. I, I'm, as you can probably tell, Amy, I'm pretty sceptical about mm. um, that, that sort of idea. So if you're am I. Cut emissions, I have this funny idea that you should actually just regulate to cut emissions, but somehow, you know, through things like the safeguard mechanism and through offset systems, we've we've come up with this extraordinarily complicated system that very few people understand, which actually does everything but cut emissions. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, as you point out, uh, not only are you sceptical, the United Nations, scientific organisations have warned against relying heavily on offsets to do emissions abatement. So I guess they've conceded that we can't get rid of them now. Everyone seems to have been enraptured and captured by this idea, but that they shouldn't really be the main game. And you also cite a report from the University of Melbourne saying that there really aren't enough trees or arable regions in the world to offset the growing emissions that we have. So, you know, it's it's pretty clear, the scientific evidence at least, that offsetting is not really the answer. And you've just also pointed out so many reasons why it's not. But I also wanted to just drawing draw in another furphy before we get into more on um, carbon credits and safeguard mechanisms. And that was this idea of net zero, this net zero 
target and the fact that, as you say, so many corporations have said, you know, we're net zero by 2050 and, um, you know, are promoting their credentials as um, being responsible companies. But you point out in your piece that intrinsic to almost all net zero commitments are two key factors. Only a subset of emissions will be counted and any emissions can be offset. Could you take us through this idea of net zero and what it actually means in practice for uh, not only the government when it says it wants net zero by 2050, but also individual companies? Yeah. So obviously net zero by 2050 has become become the sort of catchword for for all corporations and governments. But... um, I guess the sort of best example of um, the failure of of, um, that phrase to actually capture the reality is when you look at something like uh, a gas company. So I'm sure listeners have heard of scope one and scope two and three emissions. Uh, When it comes to it, so scope one emissions are the emissions produced when you uh, make your product. Uh, scope two emissions are the indirect emissions from the energy used when you make your product. And scope three are all the other emissions. So in terms of gas production, scope one emissions uh, refer to like basically the emissions that are produced when Woodside actually drags the gas out of the earth and when it uh, turns the lights on in its office. Uh, so it doesn't... It, Scope one doesn't account for the 90% of emissions that are burned when its gas is exported overseas. So when they say they have a net, when a gas company says it has a net zero target, it means that it's going to offset, not even reduce, because you can't not produce emissions when you're making gas. It means they're going to offset 10% of the total chain of of uh, of production and and uh, and eventual burning, as in the total production cycle of their gas is only only ten percent of it is offset. Now they can then come out and say we've got a net zero by twenty fifty target while they're expanding their you know operations and sending ninety percent of their gas overseas. It's it's completely ludicrous, right? Mm. Uh, and when people talk about net, it's because they're saying uh, the the amount of abatement is going to uh, they're going to abate rather than cut necessarily their emission. So the net part of net zero means whatever we can't cut, we're going to buy offsets for. Uh, and as, as I've just been explaining, the whole system of offsets it just is not equivalent to actual cuts. So I, I'm, I've become increasingly dubious about the phrase net zero mm-hmm. uh, by 2050, especially when there's this implication, this kind of uh, a parentheses after the phrase, which is just be aware that it doesn't mean no emissions by 2050. It means we're going to offset all of our emissions. That not every we can't. We can't operate on that basis globally. We're not going to bring down emissions. Yeah. So if you're offsetting such a tiny proportion and then also, as you say in your piece, uh, those carbon credits and offsets 
are very shaky in terms of their um, efficacy. And one great example you give is The Guardian reporting that over 90% of offsets certified by the world's biggest carbon standard body, Vera, were likely to be phantom credits. So, you know, if if you're offsetting such a tiny amount and maybe those credits, maybe a proportion of them are not actually truly even offsetting anything, what do you have left? You know, like just how much action is being taken here? Yeah, you have a pure greenwashing scheme. It's it's just pure justification for continued emissions. And that's what a large part of, of carbon credit schemes have, have now become, unfortunately. So when you think that you're buying, you're offsetting your flight through Qantas, uh, essentially probably you're just giving money to this greenwashing scheme, which is pretending to plant forest in a country that no one's checking uh, that probably doesn't draw down the emissions that you think it is. Uh, uh, this is all pretty bleak, Amy, but yeah. um, it, this is this is the, the structure that's been built by, you know, the fossil fuel companies with the tacit approval of governments to in order in order to avoid cutting emissions. Mm, gosh, it's so disturbing. And you take us through um, some of the actions that. We had in the past, for example, when I was watching the Senate inquiry into this issue of the safeguard mechanism bill, Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute was saying, of course, you know, more economists would rather have what we had under the Gillard government, which was negotiated uh, with the Greens, which was an economy-wide price on carbon, uh, which did seem to reduce emissions. Uh, You point out now that instead of that, which Tony Abbott called a carbon tax, we now only have an emissions reduction fund and a safeguard mechanism, which in particular applies to 215 facilities at the moment. And you say it's likely to rise. But that was also an interesting point in the inquiry, is that it seems that it's just some arbitrary number, this 215 that are captured in the safeguard mechanism scheme. Could you tell us about those companies, the types of industries that have been somehow arbitrarily included and what they cover? Yeah, so it's the 215 biggest emitters. and it's it's mostly fossil fuel companies, um, it, but it's also things like cement companies and aluminium producers. Uh, so, but they've been essentially lumped in together because uh, they're the, the biggest emitters, and the cutoff is the arbitrary number. Mm. But essentially, it means that uh, you're treating cement companies the same as you're treating gas companies uh, and their operations are so vastly different. I mean, producing uh, producing cement, it's, it's a very hard uh, thing to abate your emissions when you're producing cement for various kind of technical reasons. But uh, if you want to cut rapidly from your, your gas emissions, well, you need to stop mining gas. Um, that, that, that's actually a pretty easy one to cut. It's just that uh, no one wants to get in the way of the big gas companies and, and their profits at this point. You know, I think Australia is getting some royalties from gas companies, etc. Uh, Woodside and the likes of Santos, they're just hugely uh, powerful companies in Australia. Um, so, yeah, but essentially... 
what what we used to have was a carbon tax applied to everything, and now it only applies to the top 215 facilities in Australia. So it's a much much less effective scheme than than the uh, ETS was. Yeah, and are there and, proposals um, to and negotiating? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and and the safeguard mechanism has been all about um, how they uh, how they'll meet their emissions reduction obligations. Yeah, yeah, and I well, when you're talking about um, gas projects going ahead, I did kind of roll my eyes a little bit over the weekend when New South Wales Labor did win the election, and uh, we heard Penny Sharp tell ABC News immediately uh, on election night that the Narrabri gas development would be going ahead and that Labor had no plans to change it. This is a Santos project. So, you know, it's it's happening left, right and centre, this kind of enthusiasm for approving gas projects under Labor governments. Well, and... Even yesterday, on the very day that they announced these amendments to the safeguard mechanism, uh, negotiated with the Greens that there's now going to be a hard cap on emissions, literally the same day, the Environment Department uh, announces that it's approved a new gas project in Western Australia. Like, it's a pretty funny hard cap when you just keep adding gas facilities to it and there seems like you say there's just no sense that the government wants to stop these operations uh i i it it's just it blows my mind that we still have to uh fight this fight frankly yeah um i don't i i mean we'll we'll talk about the safeguard mechanism and and the amendments i'm sure but um it's a very strange kind of world to be watching when, on the one hand, every scientist, every scientific organisation, everyone from the UN down says you really need to be rapidly cutting emissions. And we're, on the day we're launching a new climate policy, we're, <laughs> we're approving gas projects out to 2070. I mean, what do they think the world is going to be like in 2070 and what in what world are you reaching net zero by 2050 and you're dragging gas out until 2070 it's just bizarre yeah no it makes no sense at all and um you know to bring it home very clearly you know the liverpool planes which uh we know tony windsor that's close to him and where he lives and his heart and he's um as, as a past independent, fought very strongly for the Liverpool Plains. You know, now we hear Liverpool Plains farmers are fighting against two different gas projects, both owned by Santos as well. So it is really frustrating, so, so frustrating, and I understand uh, your frustrations because I'm feeling them too. Uh, let's talk about what you just said with the safeguard mechanism because all of the conversations that we heard, especially the speeches that that we heard Chris Bowen give in Parliament, were quite absurd. Like, I was really thinking, am I watching this right now? Do Labor not realise exactly what they're arguing here? And that was when we had no cap on emissions with this safeguard mechanism. So what did Labor actually want to get through with the coalition that the coalition didn't eventually agree to? Well, look, the, 
it's hard to explain the coalition's actions at all, actually, because they had a chance to pass a piece of legislation that they had essentially designed themselves. Uh, this is the original, the safeguard mechanism that Labor originally proposed. It was so close to the coalition's own policy that, uh, it, it, you know, who can explain what the coalition under Dutton is doing? They've, they've completely written themselves out of all of these negotiations and, and out of all relevance. So with the coalition saying no to this policy, uh, the, it, it then went to the Greens to negotiate a, a better deal or to negotiate a deal with this safeguard mechanism that they could live with. Uh, and I think this that's the kind of key phrase in this, because I don't think the Greens uh, entirely, they're certainly not happy. Certainly internally, there's, uh, no, there's no great celebration about the safeguard mechanism that's just been passed. But look, every, every headline that you'll see today will be saying uh, there's a hard cap on emissions Chris Bowen and the Greens have agreed. We have a, we finally have a climate policy. Uh, the climate wars are over. You know, it was, it was was some of the tweets that I saw this morning, and all of the headlines were about how the pragmatic Greens have finally um, come to their senses, basically, and mm. passed this safeguard mechanism with with some significant improvements. Uh, so there were some significant improvements, um, and there, I mean. <laughs> I, without going into lots and lots of detail, what the top line comment is that there's response is that there's now a hard cap on actual emissions. So previously, uh, under the originally proposed safeguard mechanism, all of the companies could just literally buy as many offsets as they wanted to meet their emissions obligations. So their emissions could go up as long as their offsets went up even more. So my suspicion was always that people, that companies were just going to buy their way out of their obligations. Now, to their credit, the Greens pushed very hard once they realised they, they weren't going to get their, their, their preferred option, which was no new coal and gas. Uh, once they realised that that wasn't going to be accepted, they said, well... Let's actually put a hard cap on the the actual emissions, so that you can't just offset your way out. There needs to be an actual reduction in emissions, uh, which seems like a big win. And um, you know, and that's that's the thing that's been applauded among other various you know conditions and additions to the and amendments to the bill. I'm sort of starting to have a fear about the actual strength of that hard cap, though. Um, if you really look closely at the at the the wording in the bill, it seems to well put it this way, Amy. There's no actual new regulations or mechanisms for individual companies to actually cut their emissions. There's nothing in it. It just says that there has to be an overall limit to the number to to the the tonnage of emissions. Uh, so there's the an overall amount, cap. As an overall cap, right? But for each individual company, there there are no new conditions. So there's there's they can still individually use offset. So in fact, the onus has switched from uh, the onus has switched to the minister to ensure that the overall limits aren't breached. Individual companies don't have a legal obligation under this bill 
to actually physically cut their emissions. So when, when I sort of think about it logically, you've got 215 companies, each of them going, well, I'm not responsible for the overall cap. Mm. I'm just one part of it. And there's nothing in our obligations that says I, we need to cut by, you know, 30% by 2030 or 40% by 2030. So they, they can just operate as they were before. And it's the minister at some point who has to say, well, we're not going to hit our targets, so everyone's going to need to tighten it or whatever. So it's literally mm. built into this legislation that the minister will have to decide if we're, if we're about to breach that cap what to do, which to me feels like picking the can down the road for a few years, actually. Yeah, it's like you need like a real-time calculator at your desk to make sure we're all on track and the companies, you know, might just go, well, I'm not going to take responsibility. The other industry can do it because, you know, it's easier for them to cut emissions uh, than for me to and I'll just keep buying my, you know, carbon credits to offset my emissions. That's the way it feels to me. And, mm. and we're talking, the amendments have, they mentioned like a five-year rolling, a rolling average of emissions. Uh, so it's not a direct line down to, in terms of the, the cap is not going down in a direct line. Yeah. There's so much um, mealy-mouthed kind of language in there and there's so much that isn't stated and there's so much power put in um, in the minister to actually decide whether or not to um, to impose restrictions on. But Amy, think about it. Think about it this way: in four years' time, if mm. we look out and we see, if we look at that cap and it's been breached, is the minister at that point, which might not even be Chris Bowen and it might not even be the Labor Party, is that minister literally going to stand up? in front of 215, the 215 biggest polluters and most powerful companies in Australia and say, you know that legislation we passed? Well, it hasn't done the job. You all have to just voluntarily cut your emissions now. Or, like, I, I can't <laughs> see... I, I don't know how that works. I don't know how that works. It doesn't sound very I mean, the idea is... It doesn't. Uh, and I think... Um, I think... Look, the optimistic view is that the minister is keeping track of the emissions generally and they're saying to some new projects, well, this is going to add to the carbon budget too much, so I'm not going to approve it. But again, the Labor Party are all in on gas and I just don't see that they're turning around at any point and saying no to these projects. Anyway, mm. I'm, 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 a bit of a, I'm a bit of a cynic by now. No, I, well, I understand why after reading your piece, truly, and I hope people do read the full detail of it because we's, we won't get to cover it all. But I just wanted to talk about the fact that it is going to now go to the Senate um, and uh, Pocock and Lambie will be considering it alongside the Greens, who, of course, have done this deal. Um, and no doubt the independents in the lower house were part of the, you know, cycle of amendments that were being proposed. So a lot of people have been involved in this bill and the amendments so far. Um, you know, do you think there's any room for further amendment or, you know, because obviously that would mean it has to go back to the lower house or is this really just going to get waved through now once we get to the Senate? 
I suspect it's going to be waved through now. Um, I think Pocock has, has more or less flagged that he's he's satisfied. He may have one or two more amendments, but I think that the politics um, is more or less done and dusted now. Um, I think the long-term strategy of the Greens and possibly Pocock and and some of the Teals in the lower house is that this is just the first battle um, and they need to keep fighting on for, for different ways of, of uh, preventing new coal and gas. So I think the Greens have taken taken you know a small win in the sense that they've got some amendments. Uh, they've taken their their wins and they'll bank them, and then in in a short period of time they'll start ramping up towards the next election because the Labor Party are not going to tighten this legislation any more than they need to, not in the next couple of years, as in once they've done this, they'll say, well, we've, we've delivered our uh, election promises and we have a climate policy, etc. cetera. Uh, I think the Greens, you know, are just pleased that they didn't get wedged terribly mm. uh, in these negotiations. And, you know, they're probably relieved that we're not going to be talking about this safeguard mechanism in the same way that people are still talking about the CPRS in 2009, that they're wreckers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so for them, you know, they, I, I think the Greens probably feel like they've got a few important amendments. They would figure that that cap might work. Uh, and it's certainly it's, it's being promoted, it's being touted by the rest of the media as a good amendment and a winning sort of uh, a winning negotiation. So yeah, as I say, they'll 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 be satisfied that they can go to the next election fighting for for, actual, for much stronger action, which they will do, no doubt. And and you know, for my part, I don't blame the Greens for caving. Uh, I think they had they had so little leverage uh, with with a lot of the environment groups actually backing. Uh, Labor's original version of the safeguard, or saying that it should just it should be passed. Any any progress is better than none. Uh, there wasn't a lot of institutional backing for the Greens, and I know that uh, they were feeling that um, pretty pretty starkly, actually. Yeah, no, it's uh it's very very frustrating for them, I'm sure as well. And um, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to explain so much of the complexity to us. It's been very eye-opening, I'm sure, for many, and I really do implore uh, those listening to read Nick's piece, The Great Stock and Coal Swindle. Uh, Rachel Withers has just tweeted it again, so I've retweeted it onto our profile, so it's right up there on the Twitter page for people to find very easily. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Nick, for doing the hard yards and work for us because it's it really does show that you've um, got your head around some really impressive and um, complicated concepts that we actually do need to understand ourselves. So I really do appreciate your time and expertise today. Oh, thanks for having me, Amy. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I've just been speaking with Nick Fike, who is a journalist. He's also former editor of The Monthly, and he's written a fabulous piece in the March edition of The Monthly, which is both print and online. Um, you can check it out online. It's called The Great Stock and Coal Swindle uh, or, of course, by the uh, the hard copy magazine. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. It's really great to have your company today and it's really great to have the company of two fabulous guests. I'm so excited to welcome onto the program Sophie Hutchings, who is an Australian composer and pianist, as well as Sophia Ilias, who is founder of Float and also the organiser of Piano Day. And she's been doing a terrific job of engaging us Melburnians and also those in London and others around the world in the excitement of Piano Day, which is tomorrow Wednesday, the 29th of March. And the reason why it falls on that day in particular is that it's the 88th day of the year because it signifies the 88 keys on a standard piano. And as part of Piano Day here in Melbourne, there will be a special event which is hosted by Float in Brunswick at Tempo Rubato, which is a wonderful live classical music venue. Unfortunately for you, at the moment it's sold out. There is a waiting list available, but this is going to be on Sunday, the 2nd of April. It features Sophie Hutchings, who we're about to speak with, as well as Grace Ferguson and Evelyn Ida Morris. As I said, there are many other events taking place across the globe, including, of course, in London, in Trafalgar Square at the National Gallery, which is a gorgeous venue. And as well as that, there is a Piano Day companion album called Piano Day Volume 2 with 13 exclusive and previously unreleased piano tracks from people including Jan Tiersen and Caitlin Aurelia Smith and many, many more. So I've got to say I have played pieces from Piano Day Volume 1 before on this show, so those listening should be in some way familiar with Piano Day, even if you didn't know it. I've got to say this show has certainly played its fair share of contemporary classical piano pieces, so I know that this audience is primed for a conversation about Piano Day. So I welcome onto this show Sophie Hutchings. Hi there, Sophie. Hey, Amy, how are you going? I'm good, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. And thank you and welcome to Sophia Ilias, who's joining us from London. Hi, Amy. Hi. Nice to on the show. Great to have you. Great to have you both together for this conversation about Piano Day. I know that we have days for so many things. We've got World Poetry Day, which just happened recently. We've got World Puppy Day, which was also recent. But Piano Day does feel to me at least, as a very special day. And it also has a kind of interesting history. A lot of these days are usually set on the United Nations calendar as an, a global day, whereas this day came about in a different way. So I wonder if, Sophia, you could tell us about where this piano day came from and when it started. Yeah, sure. Um, it's kind of a funny story. Um, it started in Nils Fram's kitchen in Berlin in his studio in Wedding, where he used to he recorded all of his earlier piano albums. And we were having a meeting around a new album that he just recorded, and he was telling us the background story of it, of how it was recorded on the world's tallest piano. Um, and we were all having a giggle, and we were like, "Of course, Nils, you know, you would do that." Um, and Nils was very passionate about the idea of building an even taller piano, which was going to cost 140,000 euros in total. Oh. 
Um, yeah, um, his idea was to give away the album for free that he'd recorded, and he wanted to raise money um, through donations to build this piano. Um, and as his PR, and uh, at the time I was co-running his label as well, um, he asked me, you know, what day do you think we should release this on? Um, he'd already released two albums, so I was a bit like, oh, how are we going to build a narrative around this one? Um, and I'd said, um, how about we, we pick a day to align it with? Um, and Neil said, oh, let's just do it on piano day. Just we all assumed it existed when he said it. And we were so surprised when we searched online that it didn't exist. And we all looked at each other and we were like, shall we do it? Like, shall we just launch a piano day? Um, and that's how it started. What an amazing thing. That is insane. And it makes me think about, I'm very curious to know just how tall the world's tallest piano is right now. Do you know? I think the original one was over seven feet tall. Um, and the current one, I'm not sure. I have actually stood on it. It sits in Nils's um, studio and I can confirm I had to climb up a very long ladder to get <laughs> to the actual place. But it's an incredible piano because the strings go, you know, upwards and they're huge. So you just hit one note and it just resonates so much and just creates such a strong sound. And if you want to hear it, it's um, his album solo. You'll hear that incredible sound of that piano. Oh, wow. That's so inspiring to hear that this day has been created and that there was, there was this kind of gap. I'm also shocked that there wasn't a piano day because, as I said, you know, we've got puppy days and poetry mm. days. Piano has been around for such a long time. This is a an absolutely vital instrument that's also so flexible, I guess, in the ways that you can use it and it comes in many shapes and forms, as we've just heard. I'll bring in Sophie here because it feels like a good time, Sophie, to talk about pianos and your relationship to pianos, especially the pianos that you own. And I did see a little video that you put up about your studio, which is kind of like a, a garage that you've kitted out and the Yamaha pianos that you've got. Could you tell us about your relationship to the pianos that you have now and even, you know, your relationship to the piano when you first came across it? Yeah, I think... <sighs> Pianos are really interesting because I almost find them to be like forming a relationship with a human being. They're very, they've all got their own characteristics, personalities. They have their mood swings like humans as well. So you've kind of got to befriend them. And, you know, I didn't start on, start out on some grand piano, the, the piano that we had growing up my father used for writing arrangements. I don't even remember the brand. Um, and over the years, of course, when you're touring in various countries, just you're, you're playing on so many different pianos. I've recorded on different pianos. And I guess it's a really interesting challenge because you, you learn that. I guess that's the interesting thing about pianos which are so unique to other instruments other instruments are used with breath or vibration whereas piano it's a very it's a very physical communicative relationship with the piano which for people who play piano or haven't it's it's very it's a very engaging human aspect you're you're going by feel and touch and i guess if you think of the whole the original name of the piano, piano forte, which we a lot of us know means soft, loud. You've got this incredible range and sound. So, I've played on many, um, 
And the ones that I currently have now, I have two Yamahas, which are incredibly beautiful instruments, but they have their own personalities too. My one at home is quite different to my one in my studio. Um, But you have really, really different experiences. You don't carry around your own instruments. So I've gotten to get to know a lot of pianos over the years, recording environments. I've played some very challenging pianos, but out of that always becomes a really interesting experience. And I think Sophie will agree um, from a lot of Niels's experiences as, as well is embracing it's almost like on my last solo piano album, um, a quote I made was it's almost like you're diving into the lungs of the piano. When you're experimenting with, say, felt piano, you really hear a lot of the internal characteristics of the piano. So it's almost like hearing it breathe. That's something that Niels really embraces, which makes it a really intimate personal experience, which I think is another thing that really differentiates the piano from other instruments and it's become quite alternative in its approach in recent years. Mm, Yeah you pick up on that point which I was actually going to ask about anyway so you know when you hear some of these more contemporary recordings you can hear the sound of the key moving or sliding up and down you can hear the hammer sometimes as well like it does feel that there's as you say, this kind of intimacy and you can see the mechanisms and the movement of the actual instrument in your mind's eye when you're listening to some of these because obviously there must be a number of microphones mic'd up to make that effect. But could you explain to us how, as a composer, you might incorporate or think about the way that you use the piano in its many different forms, not just its typical sounds that are made but it's also its mechanical sounds? Mm, Well, I guess... Now that we're talking about felt piano, because it's become hugely popular, not that, I mean, some people think it's a more recent discovery, but it it actually originates right back from the classical period. You know, people like Beethoven and Mozart were actually dabbling around with felt piano, but people like Chili Gonzalez and and Niels Fram made it like huge. And now it's used in films for film scores a lot, but I guess for me personally, it's it's not something I purposely think about. It all depends on the piano. And in, and in time, say, for instance, my last solo piano album, which was all felt piano, um, I actually, which is very typical of me, I, I go into the dark um, as far as, like, I drove all the way to this remote location in the back Byron Hinterland I'd never played this piano. I hadn't met met the piano before. I say that because I always find pianos almost very like a relationship. And when I first met the piano, she was very old, very charismatic. And when I first started playing her, I was kind of like, oh, what have I done to myself? It was very, very different, challenging. But when you turn that challenge into something uh an artistic venture, all those sounds that you're talking about, Amy, become like part of the art, part of the journey, part of the sound. I remember my A&R manager at my record label once saying, it's almost like craniosacral therapy, you know, where you're having your your head, head massage. I don't know if I'm going off on a weird tangent here, but there is something very engaging and personal about it. And I wanted to turn that sound and that experience into the whole part of the experience, the sound of that piano breathing and hearing and 
Um, you literally are inside. It's not like just hearing music. It's it's a whole experience. And I think people really enjoy that because it's very intimate and very personal. So there's just, and these days, there's just so many different approaches. Like you've got people like um, John Cage to people like Hauschka now who are really amazing in dabbling with prepared piano, which I've actually done a little bit of myself, which is all about, you know, using foreign objects. It could be, you know, Hauschka uses ping pong balls and gaffer tape and creating different sounds with the piano. So I think whether it be approaching it from just a very heartfelt traditional approach to experimentation, it's just, it's such a broad scope in the way you can hear it. Yeah. Oh, thank you for taking us into your world a little bit there, Sophie. Sophia, I want to also draw you into that part of the conversation around your relationship and interest in piano. Obviously, there's a professional component there because you've been working with musicians and artists in your job at Float and also before that. But also, you know, I see that you have been presenting it on Soho Radio and clearly you have your own appreciation of piano works personally as well. So could you tell us a little bit about what piano has meant to you? Yeah, all through my life, I always knew I wanted to do something with music, but I didn't have any music education. I also didn't have any education in PR or marketing or anything like that. Um, But I kept coming across piano players and it started with Nils and I started to see others that I just felt were so incredible. I just knew there was something in me. I just knew that sound was different to other things out there. Um, And the more I got to know the artist, the more I could see that there wasn't much representation for them. Um, So I just took a risk. I moved to Berlin um, and I moved there to be closer to Nils. And at that time, there was, you know, Dustin O'Hara and there was Hauschka, who Sophie mentioned earlier on, who's just won an Oscar for Best Film. Um, There was Johan Johansson. There were so many incredible artists um, who now everyone knows and knows their names. So back then they didn't. Um, And somehow something inside of me just said, you need to work with them. You need to help them get their music out there. And that's how my journey started. It started with Nils and then came in Dustin and all the other artists. And, you know, it didn't happen overnight. It took three solid years of working really, really hard. I remember, you know, um, that you were talking earlier on about microphones and things like that. Um, Nils's album felt that he recorded because his neighbors were really annoyed with him playing piano. So he had no choice but to mic up his piano in the evening and then play it through that way so he could hear the sound back. And I remember sending it to a journalist and not hearing back from anyone. And then one said, oh, I really like this album in a way that it helps me fall asleep. Ha ha ha. And I was just heartbroken. I was just like, you know, so heartbroken. But you know, I kept at it. I kept at it. And then right around the three year mark, something just started changing. People started opening up. And I think that was driven a lot by the younger generation, people like me who didn't know much about classical music, but knew we liked the sound of the piano. And I think this type of music became an entrance for people like me. And uh, it wasn't so harsh and stiff, um, like maybe some classical music can come across as or too scary to be um, close to. And I think Nils and other artists like him opened that door. Um, And I just felt like I owed them something in, you know, helping them get their music out there. And 
I'm just fortunate. I feel honestly like every day I feel so lucky. I, I can't even believe the event on Friday is happening at the National Gallery. I, I still don't believe it actually <laughs> is happening. Because, um, you know, I come from a Pakistani, very working class family in Cardiff in Wales, where not much happened. Mm. Um, so for me to look back at the last 10 years, it's just been incredible and surreal. And I pinch myself all the time, you know, that I'm yeah, able to do this and be in this position and, and help piano players. So, yeah, I want to do it for the rest of my life if I can. Oh, I'm so glad you decided to, Sophia, because we've benefited greatly from it. Out of curiosity, do you know which room it is in at the National Gallery? Yes, it's in room 34, putting the piano right in the middle of that room. And from the distance in the next room, you can see Monet. Um, wow. But, yeah, room 34. Oh, I did. I really loved going to the National Gallery when I was in London. So, yeah, I, I can't even imagine the idea of having a live concert in there, like with a piano. It's going to be amazing. Are you going to be filming it? Uh, yes, we will be filming it. And I, I think something that a lot of people don't know is that during World War II, all the paintings in the gallery were um, removed and there was nothing there besides empty frames. And a composer and piano player, Myra Hess, started playing free concerts there. I think she did something like incredible number of concerts, maybe 5,000 or something. And they used it as an opportunity to also give food to the community. And at the time, it was the only music happening in London and it became really quite significant at the time and I think a lot of people don't know that story that yeah the gallery does have a link to the piano as well and I think probably there's a piano story in all of us somewhere um so yeah it feel, feels right to be doing this there that's amazing yeah I just um quickly checked room 34 to jog my memory and it's the Constable Turner and Gainsborough room and next door there's David, Fragonard, Vernet, Hogarth and British painting, and as you say, Monet. So, wow, it's going to be in the room with the Haywain as well. So, you know, this is a very special room in art historical sides as well. It's great to see the combination of art and music so beautifully come together. We'll talk about the Melbourne event in a moment's time, but I wanted to go back to you now, Sophie, to talk about the piece that we heard just before this conversation. So we heard there a rework that you did of an Oliver Arnold song, Still Slash Sound, which is one of his recent pieces. And this is very recent, the rework that you've done. And many different pianists were invited to rework his pieces, including Hani Arani and Lambert, who are some of my absolute favourites as well. And I wanted to understand from you as to how you approached a rework of someone else's work and in particular this piece, obviously being a composer yourself, you know, what were some of the approaches or ways that you thought about it when you were given this chance to do it and how did you record it? Yeah, it's interesting. When Whenever you're approaching a rework, I mean, first of all, when Olfa asked me, I'm like, oh, this isn't my piece. Like, how am I going to do this? And because composers when they write music it comes from such a personal place so my first instinct was I want to do something that pays homage to to the personality and intimacy of Oliver's music but put a genuine slant on it from myself and still sound is very different in that um I've always gravitated to really repetitive music I always find it very mindful and hypnotic. So I really loved that piece. 
and the way he builds on that repetition and then layered all the strings in. And so when I approach a rework, most of it, most of the time is actually pottering around and listening to it over and over again. And then once I sit at the piano, that's when I disengage. I actually don't think about it and just let it kind of evolve on its own, if that makes sense. And so I just spent, I think it came from a subconscious place because I really wanted it to come from a genuine place. And so um, I guess I wanted to incorporate the melody of these beautiful strings that gradually come in as well. So I kind of used, and that's the beauty of the piano too. It's got so many different voicings. So I was able to incorporate both in the one instrument because um, Oliver, when I spoke to him, it was very much based on, he really wanted it to be very piano centric. Not that it all turned out that way because he gave the artist freedom, free reign, um, but I really wanted to stick within that scope. And so I, um, it's a funny story actually, because I was sort of dabbling around with it. And then we had a crazy sudden, um, natural disaster strike the the coastline of our area and um, all the electricity was out and I had to get this piece in within the next week and I was like, oh, what if the power doesn't come on? And it came on at about 10.30 one night, so I just jumped in the car, raced up to my studio and literally just spent the whole night recording. So it was from like midnight and then by 4.30 a.m. I messaged my label and Without me even mixing it, they sent it to Oliver, which I was mortified. I was like, don't send it to Oliver yet. I haven't mixed it. But he loved it. And then, yeah, so it was a very organic approach. It was very based on a lot of feeling, which is always my approach. I try not to overthink it, and and but there was a lot. It's a lot of listening and then letting the body disengage and, and the mind disengage, and it's all about feeling, which I think is very much why people – love piano, whether that, that be the composer or the listener. Yeah, that's so true. It's it's very evocative. It's meditative. It it can offer you a, a place that you probably can't reach yourself just by yourself. So, you know, the music is very transporting. It gives you a new space for your mind to sit in, I think, as a listener personally. That's a really interesting observation because I always find if someone's talking to me about it, I always find it a really hard thing to explain. I almost feel like piano is the, like I have a split personality because when it comes to piano, it's a very introverted side of me. It's almost like you just go into this other world that you you kind of can't explain. It's a, it's just an experience. It's a feeling. And I, I guess that's what's so beautiful and expressive about it. It's, it's the more introverted side of me because I'm certainly not shy, but what, when it comes to music, I always have tended to be quite shy. And I think it's because it's such an expressive, communicative sort of instrument and it expresses and, and unifies everyone because it's almost like this universal language. It doesn't matter what language you speak globally. It brings everyone together. And I think the amazing work that Sophia has put into Piano Day, it's really made it into this huge community where people of all different scopes of life, whether you be a beginner, an advanced player, um, and no matter what kind of piano you play, everybody to some extent can be involved on any level. 
Yeah. Well, you've perfectly segued into my next question for Sophia. So thank you, Sophie. <laughs> Not intended. <laughs> yeah, no, it was really well done because it, it takes me to community engagement, Sophia, and your work in Melbourne. I know we're speaking to you from London, but you have certainly been doing some amazing work in Melbourne here with Piano Day and, of course, around the world as well, as Sophie was mentioning. So I wonder, could you tell us and take us through some of the ways that you've been engaging not only adults like myself, but also kids as well, you know, all types of people, like Sophie was saying, in Piano Day here in Melbourne? Yeah, I think... You know, when I did the first event, it was during COVID and there was a bit of a gap where things opened up. Um, and I remember talking to a friend and, and kind of moaning, oh, I'm stuck in Melbourne. Um, and there's, you know, I won't be doing piano day. And they were like, just do one in Melbourne. And I'm like, but I don't know Melbourne at all. Like, I, I really didn't. Um, and one thing that really struck me about that first event and I didn't even realize is the amount of emotion that was there on that day. Um, people saying, you know, it's the first time I've been in a room for a year with other people. First time I've been, you know, to a music show in over a year. Um, and I really felt there was just something there that that piano show was giving. And there was a lot of people in tears as well. Um, and I think, you know, for the second event and, and also for all events, I've always tried to use um, local kind of people in terms of just the drinks or, or anything that's on display for that piano event. Um, last year, for example, we had Sahel Rowe, who's a painter. He was painting live from scratch while the... Um, the uh, music was being played um, and for me that's a really important part of my piano day events that I try and bring in other creatives as well like I have a lot of dance as well um, this year for example I'm um, in Albans North Primary School and um, the kids there aged eight to nine I asked if they could provide us drawings while they listen to the piano and some of the drawings that I come across actually all of the drawings um, are just amazing and incredible and I was told the kids really enjoyed the activity um, and I'll be showing that those pieces of art um, on the day and asking people in the evening to also write messages back to the students and saying how great their art is so we can send that message back um, but community whether it's in London or in Melbourne is always yeah been important to me to involve the community as much as possible possible um, and to give artists a platform that you know may not have a space that really suits them um, but one thing I found in Melbourne is that there's such a desire for things like this um, you know only a couple of months ago I was not thinking about doing a piano day this this year in Melbourne but I got so much support and emails coming through saying you know please do it we're on the ground we can help you you know you have to do this and the fact that it's sold out so fast I think shows that there's a real appetite for it in the community. And if I can facilitate that, then I'm, I'm so happy to do that, even from London. Yeah, it's amazing. It just goes to show the connections between our two cities. They are strong. And I know there's plenty of Australians even over in London as well. So, yeah, yeah it's a really, really interesting connection. One of the great aspects, as you say, is the events that are put on. And as you said, this event with Sophie Hutchings, who we're speaking with here now, as well as Grace Ferguson and Evelyn Ida Morris, that one has sold out. But, you know, what are some of the reasons why you picked these particular artists? You know, and what do you admire about their works? I always tend to have artists in the back of my mind that I kind of park 
Um, and I try and build the event around that one artist. So last year that was Luke Howard. Um, this year that was Sophie. Um, you know, I've always wanted Sophie for an event, but I always wait for the right moment and the right feeling. And this year really felt like it was a Sophie event that, that I wanted it to be. Um, and from there came in uh, Grace, who I've been wanting to book for years, but she's always been busy. Um, and then uh, uh, Blackbird Ventures, who always really support the events and a lot of their staff come. They kindly sent me a whole list of artists that I should look at. Um, and Evelyn just really struck me. And I thought, oh, she's the perfect accompaniment to Sophie. So, yeah, usually it starts with one key artist that I have in mind. And then I build the event around them. Yeah. And this event is also in a special space. So you've got the National Gallery in London, but you've also got Tempo Rubato here in Brunswick, which is very close by to Triple R, which is in Brunswick East. And it is very much a classical venue. This is a really special place. And I know that the organisers are also doing great work to make it a a highly ventilated space, a COVID safe space for people to attend live music venues, which does matter still to many people. And it's also just a really amazing thing to have such a a kind of classical music specific venue. Could you tell us a little bit about Tempo Rubato and their role in this day as well? Yeah, I think, you know, doing an event from a distance, you really want to feel like you have a lot of support from the venue. And Tempo Roboto, like from the offset, were just so positive about the event and were so helpful. You know, and I'm there worried about who's going to be on the door and who's going to do the bar and da da da. And they're just like, don't worry about any of that. Like, we're going to be taking care of it. And then looking more into the venue and seeing that they donate, you know, so much of their funds to charity and to help towards, you know, people learning piano. I was just like, oh, my God, this is the perfect fit. Like they're doing so much in the community. And at the same time, they're offering me so much help as well. Um, And I think it's the same when I'm booking an artist or booking a venue. You just immediately feel the flow and a connection and an energy and you're like, okay, this is the right thing for me. Um, And I immediately felt that Tampa Roboto, the staff there are just so helpful. Um, And up until a week ago, I wasn't actually planning to come to the event. I was just going to leave it all to them. So, but I am happy I'm going to come now. But um, yeah, they've just been incredible. And I think, you know, the fact it's sold out so quickly has a lot to do with them as well. And they're all organization and help as well. And it's great because you can even become a member of Tempo Rubato. And it's also lovely to see that they're giving residencies for artists to, you know, explore their works and also bring in other guest artists to perform with them. So it's a really, really interesting venue. And for those who aren't familiar with it, they can find them on social media or temporubato.com.au. Now, going back to Sophie Hutchings, Sophie, I know it's a a really cool thing. It must be for any musician to perform live, but I did see in your Instagram post that you said you don't often get to do that. And I wonder how you're approaching this performance on Sunday, April the 2nd, and how you see live performances for yourself as a pianist and a composer. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is an interesting one. This has probably got to do with my split personality as well because I've always been the class clown, but when it came to performance and piano, I, from a very young age, desperately shy. You could get me singing into the hairbrush or the vacuum cleaner and dancing around, but always, always so, so shy and timid when it came to piano. So I guess it was actually a choice thing, Um 
And over the years, anyone who's read any press or interviews with me, I readily and wholeheartedly admit that, you know, in the early stages, you basically had to kick me onto stage. I just, I just never wanted to do it. I love the recording environment. I love writing and composing, but that was a part of me that I really have always had to fight. Um, but my passion for for music alone and piano mostly, um, as it slowly and gradually took off and became my career, I really started to cherish the feedback I was getting from my audience and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my listeners. And just as, as it started to reach more globally, I really started to place a huge value on that. And no matter how nervous or timid I get about performing, I always want to make sure I do that because there's a real reward. There's something very special and incredible about that connection with your listeners. You can't explain it. But having said that, I haven't performed since COVID. COVID was terrible for me. It, 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 it was good in that I loved the break from performing, I, but it's also taken me back to that fear and, and, and having to overcome performing in front of people. But thanks to Sophia, um, this is going to be my first performance since oh, forever. I haven't been in Melbourne since I think 2019 when I was at the Castle Main Festival, which was an incredible performance that I did a double bill with um a lot of people might know um, Federico Albanese, who's on the same record label as me. And, yeah, so it's it's heading back in. But I think for Piano Day, my approach, I feel it, I feel it's very timely for it to be organic in approach, and especially with the type of venue that Tempo Rubato is. It's, I really want to embrace the organic element of the piano. So as much as I love dabbling with other instrumentation and other sounds, I always tend to always go back to the purity of the piano and the essence of the piano itself, and that's what this night is going to be all about. It's it's a very intimate. It'll be a very intimate performance, and I want the audience to feel that. I want it to be very personal, and and I'd like to engage and talk to the audience afterwards. I want it to be basically like sitting in a big comfy lounge room, like you're visiting your grandmother's place as a child or something like that. <laughs> I think it will have that vibe. I'm just feeling like not only is Tempo Rubato very laid back, but also, you know, a beautiful place, a beautiful space. But I think Melbourne audiences, to me at least, seem very polite and friendly and supportive. So yeah. I've I think, always had that experience. So I'm definitely yeah. looking forward to seeing my uh, fellow Melbournians. Yay. <laughs> Great that you're – I'm so glad you're coming and that Sophia is going to be there. What yeah. an amazing thing. <laughs> I wanted to ask both of you a question that I'm really curious about and it's great that we have three fabulous people in this lineup and I know that for example in the music industry in general and even in the classical and I'm thinking more traditional classical music industry it certainly has been quite male dominated over centuries and you know in the recent times we've seen so many prominent women making their names including you Sophie but I wanted to get a sense from both of you as to 
what it's like, are there difficulties still or barriers for women and non-binary people to enter this space of recording contemporary classical pieces, becoming a composer in this space, or for you, Sophia, promoting their works and also, of course, you know, the other intersections that come with that, including race and sexuality? So I might start with you, Sophie, and then go to Sophia. Do you know, definitely I would say yes, but I wouldn't have originally said that in the early days. I think um, I know Sophia did a post recently on International Women's Day and I really related to what she said in that she said she never really thinks about her gender. I, I never did. Growing up, I grew up um, two, four siblings, two girls, two boys, it was never about what you were. It was about what you did and what you created. So I had parents that were very much about it's just all about who you are, not what you were born as. But the longer I'm involved in it, the more I'm realising as a female, it, you definitely, it, it's not directed at you and it's 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 not like people do it pers- like purposely. But I think over the years, stemming from whether it be the caveman era, it's, I feel like it's almost been built into people and that it's just taken very, very long time to break down. And I just know personally, and I'm not saying this broadly, but even in a studio environment, you do get a lot of mansplaining or if you're confident or capable at what you do, sometimes that makes the male feel, I don't know how to explain it because I don't want to be generalising, but I have to say that the longer I'm in it, the more I know that women really have to fight to be equal. I think it's just a natural thing that people feel more comfortable just going for the male stereotypical um, and and they outnumber us as well. Mm -hmm. So I take my hat off to all of us who really have to, we we have to actually work extra hard to do what we do. Um, But I I try not to think about it because I don't want to feel any kind of, because there is a huge, a lot of support towards women too. And I just embrace that. And I think very much about what Sophie was saying on International Women's Day, that I never think about it. I just am who I am, but you can't help be, slightly aware of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it certainly can make itself more obvious in the awards and recognition that is given out as well, because there's a lot of unconscious bias in that process. Uh, Sophia, what about you? And especially, you know, you mentioned there you have a Pakistani background as well. Have you experienced kind of any sense of barriers when you were trying to get into this industry and to support the brilliant pianists that you really admired? Yeah, I think um, in the beginning, I definitely felt very out of place in Berlin, surrounded by people who didn't often look, well, actually no one looked like me. Um, And being a woman in that space, a a space that already exists, you know, it's existed for many, many years that you're entering into and you're wanting to have some form of an impact. And someone like me who had no background in music, uh, I definitely had to work very hard to understand you know, the technical side of, of music. And it took a while for my opinion to be, you know, valued. Um, but I was willing to put the work in and I didn't want to sort of just 
sit there and complain about about something that had already existed for years and I couldn't change overnight. So I worked really hard on learning and also aligning myself on, you know, the men who were great at teaching me and helping me. And there's so many of them out there that are willing to help you. Um, So I always focused on that side. Um, Like Sophie said, like I'm definitely someone that focuses on being me. I had to work really hard to be where I am right now as Sophia. Um, So it's something I'm very attached to. Obviously, I I am aware of gender. um, And it's something that I, you know, try and incorporate in all my lineups. Um, But it's not always easy. So as an example, um, during my five years at Erase Tapes, I think I there was only one demo ever sent by a woman to the label. And I always wondered why, yet there were so many men who would email in and say, you know, I'm I'm amazing, I'm the next Neil Strom. And it wasn't just sending in music, but being very bold and, and sort of, yeah, singing their own praises, um, but never a woman. Um, and I remember sitting at a talk once and they were talking about a charity that they'd created a fund for women. And they said that the women just didn't apply. And when they asked women why, they hadn't. And they said, oh, it's because, you know, I I didn't think it was for me or I'd get the funding and and things like that. So I think there's a lot more going on than just, you know, creating an event or creating a funding. There's also education that needs to happen and giving the confidence to women that they do deserve to be on the stage and they do deserve to have that fund. Um, I know for many years, I didn't feel like I deserved to be in the space. You know, it took a long time for me to get that out of my head that, you know, my opinion was valuable and I could put on an event like Piano Day. But yeah, I'm hoping, you know, just through doing what I do, and I'm sure Sophie feels the same, that just by being visible, that will inspire other women. Um, You know, like, I have to say, like, there is a big difference between London and Melbourne. Like in London, there's so many people of colour that I can approach to be at an, an event like Piano Day. Um, I struggle in Melbourne to find that. It's not the same. Um, So, yeah, there's challenges everywhere. And I just hope in doing something positive like a Piano Day event, you know, people can go, oh, there's a Pakistani woman on stage or South Asian woman. And, oh, look, there's, um, you know, Sophie, who's an amazing composer, like, you know, being as good as Anil's from. and, And that in itself can hopefully inspire other women. Oh, so beautifully said. I really do do agree. And especially reaching out through the primary school like St. Albans North is another great way to open up the minds and the possibilities of kids who may not think that this is potentially something that they could do because, you know, you can't be what you can't see, as they all say. I wanted to finish out this conversation talking about what we love. And I guess feel free to gush over whoever and whatever you love about the piano. But when I was making a list of all of my favourite artists who work on the piano, it was getting really long. (laughs) And I realised how many I've played on this show as well. Um, So I... I might wait till the end to give mine because maybe you'll cover mine anyway. But I wanted to ask for both of you, who inspires you, whether it is a composer from centuries ago and or composers now, pianists now, across any genre using the piano, who are the types of people who get you excited artistically or personally or emotionally about music and the piano? And I'll go to you, Sophie. Oh, I was hoping you would go to Sophia. Ah. I always find it a really, really hard question because 
music to me is such a a personal adventure mm-hmm. that I I almost feel like my inspirations come accidentally through just pure observation through all our senses, whether that be an emotion we feel from a book we've read, a film, our our environment. I spend a lot, a lot of time. I'm a very outdoors person. I think experiences, but I also hugely listen to music 24-7 if I'm not playing music. And I guess growing up, it's funny because my background isn't really classical. My father is um, from the jazz world, very jazz or die. Um, And then my other siblings, it was all indie rock and folk music, but I always gravitated towards instrumental piano. And I, I guess I will probably, if I had to say the first two very um, formative years of my discovery would be incredible Estonian composer Arvo Pert. And what I love about him is his approach to music in itself in that I remember reading once that he said it's not how much you play, it's about how you play. And that had a real effect on me because as quite a, you know, when it comes to music, I'm a complete crybaby. I get so emotionally affected by it. And his music does that to me. It doesn't matter how many times I listen to his piece for Alina. It just, I feel mm. the, the tears welling in my eyes, the lump in my throat. And it's, it's just a very simplistic piece, but to play it the way he does is just so incredibly moving. And so I think that's what it all stems back to. To me, it's how things are felt and played. And that's where when I hear musicians, whether it be going back to people like Brian Eno or Eric Satie or um, another band that a lot of people actually probably don't even hear about anymore, who I discovered in my very formative early years, was a band called The Rachels. And it was led by a female composer, Rachel Grimes, who's an incredible pianist from um, the States. And their music is just incredible. They were kind of like a chamber orchestra and they came from a very indie rock background, which is how I discovered them. And so I would say that's where my composer years come from, where I felt like, you know, I was always writing and composing music, but the music I was surrounded by was very noisy jazz or indie rock. So I actually didn't know where my compositions were coming from because they were so unlike my family environment. But then when I started listening to the Rachels, it was like an epiphany, like, wow, there's a whole world out there. And that's when I started scrambling to discover new composers. And 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 like Sophia was saying back in the day when Niels Fram, Peter Broderick, Dustin O'Halloran, all these composers, it was such a small community that um, I was a part of back then. It wasn't like what it's now. It's exploded, which is which is quite beautiful now because it's huge and and when people listen to it, I think uh, Sophia will agree as to she explained it really beautifully before how it just it 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 appeals to such a broad audience. When I look out to my audiences when I'm on tour, I've never seen such an eclectic audience. It can be ten year olds, it can be tattooed punks, it can be ninety year olds. It's just it's because people really really relate and feel towards the music. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. And for Alina, I can, uh, I can relate to choking up over that one. Oh, I do all the time. Just thinking <laughs> about it, I get a lump in my throat. <laughs> yeah. I just found a version of it that the ACO played in, I think it was Mountain, the film. So I might play that one 
if we have time after this interview, Sophie, just for you. Um, And Sophia Ilias, could you talk to us about, you know, your influences and the people who inspire you when it comes to the piano? Yeah, I think um, growing up, Radiohead were always such a big inspiration for me. And, you know, you'd hear those little delicate little bits of piano behind a track and it's always that moment that would like really move you. Um, and even recently, just listening to some of Tom York's track where it's just his voice and the piano and they just combine, just make such an incredible sound. So that was where my sort of piano journey started. Um, I think looking back, you know, Thelonious Monk, I'm, I'm a big fan of his and the story of him and, you know, his partner and how much she supported him in his career. Um, and I also love Jill Scott Horan and some of his, you know, piano uh, tunes as well and his lyrics. And I think I've always had a like for piano with vocals. Um, but yeah, I think everyone would kill me if I didn't say Nils Fromm. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, like... kill you as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he would kill me. Um, you know, just remembering back to when I first saw him play live and we didn't know each other. And um, he played to, I think, 50 people in London and they'd booked the wrong hotel um, dates for him. And I just went, oh, you can stay at mine. <laughs> so it was him wow. um, and Anna Muller, yeah, a cellist player. Um, they stayed at mine before they had to head to the airport because my, my place was on the way to the airport. And we just stayed up all night. And he was just so passionate, so passionate about what he wanted to do, where he wanted to be. And I remember him saying, like, I want to be a world-known piano. And he kind of, like, put his hand on my shoulder and he was like, are you on this journey with me? And I was like, yeah, I'm in. I'm in, you know. And, like, you know, and then seeing him, like, just play more and more was just, like, so drawn. And I didn't know what I was doing or why I was there, but I just knew I wanted to be there. Um, And just him just opening up his heart like his whole world and, you know, in terms of what we were speaking about earlier on about, you know, coming into these environments, like I would just ask every, what I would consider silly question at the time, like, why do you have monitors on stage and why are they facing you? What are they doing? And he always, you know, would tell me and and give me the answer to all my questions and, and was happy to do that. And I learned so much from him, not just about piano playing but about the behind the scenes that a lot of people don't see um you know his sound checks go on you know sometimes for five hours um and he just wants to prepare that piano so perfectly so I learned a lot from him about that and about production side which really you know I still use today and I can impress all the guys with (laughs) um but yeah, no, I'd say, yeah, I, I, it has to be Nils Fram for me. And, you know, even I, I think I feel very special because every time I listen to a lot of his music, I know the behind, you know, the story behind it. Um, and it might be like, oh, I remember sitting in the corner of the room while he played that. Or I remember what he was thinking when he did this because he's a very emotional player. Um, whereas, you know, Oliver Arnolds will tell you he's very much like, I know this this track will make someone cry, whereas Nil is crying during his track. You know, it's two different styles of playing. Um, but, yeah, that, that's my answer. Oh, that makes so much sense. Shout out to Nils for doing that yeah. and, you know, coming up with Piano Day uh, with you guys in the kitchen as well. I saw that he actually created a Piano Day playlist on Spotify I was looking at some of the songs he recently added, uh, and one of them was yours, Sophie, called Promise of Sun. So I've decided to play that after this interview. So if I'm talking about people who inspire me, that would be you, Sophie. 
Oh, um, thank you so much. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. I really do love your work. I love that, you know, we have Australians doing this amazing work and being an inspiration globally as well. Yeah, but um, it's so small. There's not many of us artists in the industry. I mean, mm. I Luke and I and a few others, um, obviously, the, um, you know, our lineup that Sophia's beautifully set up. But yeah, it's quite small here in Australia. And I'm speaking with Sophie Hutchings and Sophia Ilias. Unfortunately, there was a rare, accidental and unknown, at the time, musical interruption from another studio which aired over our conversation for the next 45 seconds. Due to copyright reasons, we can't play this section, so I'll relay what happened in the 45 seconds that we've missed here. As you heard, Sophie was just saying that Piano Day in Australia is quite small here, but they're trying to build on that. Sophia agrees, and she says, I was thinking the other day, I hope we can inspire the younger generations, otherwise I'll run out of artists for Piano Day. Sophie laughed, and Sophia said, so if we want to keep doing this for a long time, we need more people to come forward. So yeah, I hope that's an inspiration for some people to start playing piano. I then agree and say, so keep practicing kids and adults, it doesn't matter what age. I then go on to share some of the other pianists who inspire me, including other local composers and pianists like Rose Rebel and Grace Ferguson, both of whom I've played on this show before. Then if I'm looking at people who I was initially inspired by playing in this contemporary classical way, I'd be thinking about people like Dustin O'Halloran and his music, which I first heard on the Marie Antoinette soundtrack with his opus works all those years ago. Now back to the interview. Thinking about Jan Tiersen and my favourite album of his being Yusa and that gorgeous layering of nature sound effects from the island that he lives on off the coast of Brittany. Thinking then a little bit more broadly at some of the other artists like Agnes Obel, who also incorporates strings as well as piano and voice, Hideyuku Hashimoto from Japan, Shida Shahabi, uh, we've also got Johan Johansson, the late great Johan Johansson, Icelandic artist Snorri Holgrimsson, who I'm obsessed with at the moment. Of course, Oliver Arnolds, who we've just been talking about as well as Niels Fram, Joette Beving, Ludovico Einaudi is such a big name, but obviously still a great contributor. The Ukrainian artist Hainali, who is now doing a lot more synth work, but at the beginning was very piano focused. And then also people like Lambert, who I've mentioned as well. And then if I'm thinking also about those who are still working in the more classical traditional genre, who I just love anyway, they would be people like Isata Kane-Mason, because she did a great recording of Clara Schumann's work, uh, Alice Sarah Ott and her great album of Debussy and others, other great French works. I think it was called Nightfall. And then Viking Olafsson with his Debussy Rameau album, which just opened me up to the idea of Rameau in a way I hadn't expected. So that was my very not comprehensive, but just off the top of my head list of people I have played on this show, I can tell you, and also love. And certainly there's overlap there with your lists as well. So if anyone's listening and they and they don't know where to go to delve into this work, they can either go to the Spotify playlist by Niels for Piano Day. They could go to the two compilation albums, Piano Day Volume 1 and Volume 2, 
And I've also created my own playlist a couple of months ago called Curated Contemporary Classical, which is also up on Spotify and it's on the Triple R Uncommon Sense page for anyone who wants to see some of the works I've played on this show. Just to close out this chat, Sophia, you've got there two great compilation albums and obviously four tracks that have already been released in advance of tomorrow. Could you just tell us what we should expect from the rest of Piano Day Volume 2? That's a Nils project. Um, I was going to actually say earlier on with Piano Day, we all sort of latch on to what our projects will be. And Nils always said, you know, I'm not going to be playing live. I want others to do that, but I'll always curate a compilation. And that's that's his project. So, yeah, I wouldn't be able to answer that question, but I'm sure it will be incredible if it's curated by Nils. But we do see we have a list of artists already, so you can check out the list of artists on the Bandcamp page, which tells you all about the different people who've been involved this year. I know Grace Ferguson was on Volume 1, and I've played her track from that one, but there's also people like Liam Moore, James Heather featuring Sinemus, Moretti, we've obviously got Jan Tiersen with a very interesting discordant track, and also Ava Waves, Sophia Jani, and Caitlin Aurelia Smith. So a whole range of other artists we haven't yet mentioned. Thank you both for taking the time to chat with me about Piano Day and all of the lovely insights, both personal and professional, you've shared with us today. As I said, Piano Day is tomorrow, so people can get involved by checking out the compilation when it comes out, putting your name down on the waiting list. You never know. People might cancel it last minute at Tempo Rubato here in Melbourne. I'm sure we'll be hanging out to see the video from the London event, Sophia, at the National Gallery. And, of course, you can also just check out some great piano music yourself and do it informally or even get on the piano. So, um, yeah, thank you both, Sophia Ilias, founder of Float and organiser of Piano Day here in Melbourne. And thank you so much, Sophie Hutchings, Australian composer and pianist. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you you very much. An absolute pleasure. Thanks for having us, Amy. It's my pleasure. Just really enjoyed that chat here with both Sophia Ilias from Float and, as you heard there, organising some amazing events as part of Piano Day and Sophie Hutchings, who's such a talented pianist and composer here in Australia. I'm going to play a piece by Sophie as I as I promised, and it has promise in the name. It's called Promise of Sun. It was one of Nils's picks for his playlist for Piano Day, so I hope you enjoy this one. You're tuned in to 3RRR. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're tuned in to 3RRR FM. This show is Uncommon Sense, and my name is Amy Mullins, and I'm really excited to welcome back onto the show Graham Redfern, who I always thoroughly enjoy speaking with. And um, we talk usually about his areas of reporting. He is the Guardian Australia's environment reporter. That does also involve a column which covers issues around climate change as well. But his reporting in more recent weeks has included some very important studies that have come out, including a study on marine species and their decline, those species that live around reefs in Australia, also looking at logging in New South Wales and the decline in trees across 
a couple of centuries or so from 1750 onwards. Also thinking about some very visible um, issues that we've seen in the news recently with the mass fish kills in New South Wales, as well as myrtle rust rearing its ugly head once again, although it never actually goes away really. And also thinking about uh, ice sheets in Antarctica and a whole lot more. So uh, Graham is tasked with covering some very depressing topics, but he covers them so well and in such a nuanced way. So it's a real pleasure to welcome you back, Graham. Hi there. Hi, Thanks for coming back on. No worries. Um, yeah, I'm your I am your bad news correspondent. I think. Yes, I actually was thinking: is there a good news story in the list? And I don't know. I or maybe the Tasmanian tiger one that you just did. Oh, and the hairdressers? Yeah, uh, I don't know if that's good news that that, I, that, that, that a um, <laughs> this unique um, marsupial um, mammal um, it's still went extinct. It just was maybe maybe, and there's a lot of maybes in this study that I reported on. But the idea is that we all we we've all seen that picture of the of the Tasmanian tiger, the thylacine in the zoo in um, Hobart in 1936, the last one to be photographed, the, the last known specimen. But this study um, that was in a journal this week um, suggests that, it, you know, little populations of these animals might have been hanging around until sort of the 1980s, 1990s. So, you know, that, that, puts, that puts them around when neighbours... Started to come onto our screens, which um, you know, if they had the inclination to go and watch Neighbours, they they could have seen. Um, uh, Might have um, led know, to an earlier decline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they weren't gone by then, they probably. Um, yeah. Anyway, let's not go there. But, no, yeah, no. That, that but you it, can that, tell yeah. we're stretching the positivity, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's yeah, there was um interesting. Um, well, I like to think it was an interesting piece um, at the weekend actually, where we we've got. Um, these hairdressers in in New South this is in New South Wales um, that are training to talk about climate change when they have those chats um, with their clients. You know, it's usually mm. what where have you been on holiday? Um, what's the weather like? Um, and um, how's your existential crisis this lunchtime? Um, you know, they're, they're moving to climate change. I think it's a, it's kind of a really interesting idea. There was a yeah. bit of social science behind it, but there is, there, there are some, there are some positive stories that float around. But yeah, it is, it is mostly, um, I'm sorry, yeah, bad news. It is, it is very bad news. I mean, let's go with one that was so visible and disturbing because, you know, I thought when we had those mass fish kills a couple of years ago that that was it. Like, okay, we've learned our lesson. We can try and change the way the river's flowing and deal with some of the kind of direct and indirect reasons why this all happened. Uh, but this has happened all over again. And, you know, you've written some yeah. great explainer pieces talking about the similarities and differences between the two events. But would you mind taking us through what has happened this time and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. how it sits in the story of mass fish kills in recent years? Yeah, I mean, unmissable, right? These uh, The vision of these slicks of millions of dead fish um, at Menindi, near the township of Menindi, which is about an hour's drive from Broken Hill, um, and uh, a week or two ago, um, 
uh, locals started reporting these uh, these fish that were just floating in huge numbers. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, we we had a, a mass fish kill um, back in. Uh, sort of 2009, in late 2018, early 2019, um, and the the sort of proximate cause of that was uh, we were coming off long drought. There was not a lot of water in the system to begin with in the in this massive Murray Darling Basin system, and it, it started to isolate uh, fish in pockets. Um, they started to run out of oxygen. Uh, mainly because of the heat, um, warmer water holds less oxygen. Um, the water conditions were terrible, um, and you know we, we saw uh, we saw about a million fish die then. This is, this one's quite different though, um, because we were coming off those three La Nina years. Everywhere was wet, um, and for sort of two or three years, a lot of our native fish and some of the invasives, in particular carp, had been taking advantage of these conditions. Um, and they've been uh, breeding like crazy, uh, is the technical term. Um, and uh, and then um, a couple of weeks ago, we we had that heat wave that went through that area. Uh, a lot of us felt it on the east coast. Um, that raised the water temperature. Um, you already had masses of fish in the water, and what we're talking about here are mainly um, a, a species called bony bream. Uh, but there was other, there, there was some Marie Cod, golden perch, silver perch, and and some of those invasive carp in there as well. Um, uh, we'd had um, we'd had floods only a few weeks earlier. What that does is it it, it flushes the system with loads of vegetation and rubbish, um, mainly soils and vegetation that flows in. That then causes bacteria to grow. The bacteria to grow need oxygen. They deplete the waters of oxygen. Fish need oxygen. There's not enough. There's already loads of fish. And the theory is that's why they've all killed over all at once. Uh, an, an absolutely awful sight. Um, and, uh, you know, the immediate implications of that are um, water quality for those people there. They draw their water from the river. Um, there were concerns about that. There's obviously concerns when you lose a lot of those fish. But if we are grappling for sort of positives in any of this, then one of one of the experts that I spoke to, who was actually on an independent review panel to look at, at what happened in 2018-2019, Fran, Professor Fran Sheldon at the Australian Rivers Institute, she said to me, well, there, there is a very tiny silver lining here. And that is that it, to have a mass fish kill, you need masses of fish. So the suggestion is that the system can still support recovery of native fish if it's allowed to. Um, what needs to happen now, though, as she and some of her other colleagues have been saying, is um, the water that gets used for irrigation, mainly cotton, uh, upstream of Menindee, um, that needs to be allowed to keep flushing the system to allow what fish are left to breed um, and survive. And then further down the system, there needs to be these water releases from the lakes that are held in lakes by the Commonwealth need to see some environmental water released to, to keep the water quality downstream um, at, a, at a level that's good for the river. Uh, and that needs to happen sort of over the next kind of 12 to, to 18 months. Um, but a, a really um, sort of arresting sight to see all those fish. Um, it was on every news bulletin in Australia and, and uh, made it onto the, the, 
the, the pages of the BBC in the UK. Wow. Yeah, it's such a sad sight as well. And no doubt it's um, a very smelly situation out there yes. you know, with so many next of them sitting level. on the surface at the start. Yeah, next level was how one one mm. local described it to me. Um, he said, you know, imagine you leave one fish, one dead fish on your kitchen bench top and leave it there in your house, shut all the windows and doors, leave it there for a couple of days. You know, it would absolutely... It would stink. stink. Like, yeah. Well, mm. imagine that. But you, instead of one fish, you've got, you know, you've got millions of fish. Um, what we've seen in the last few days, actually, is is in line with the predictions of some of the experts, is um, a lot of those fish have sunk um, to the to the bottom of the river, where they will sort of continue to decompose, and that decomposition also takes oxygen out of the water. So you get kind of this flow-on effect um, that continues to sort of. Uh, cause problems for anything that's still alive in there. It's not just the fish, you know. It's mm. it's it's and anything else. Everything in everything in a river needs oxygen, um, and if you deplete it, then you cause all sorts of problems. Yeah, for sure. Do you think there is a you know a sign or signals or an appetite from the federal government to make sure that enough environmental water is released across the next year or so? Well, they have been that they they have talked about how they're in in conversation with the the, the Commonwealth Water Holder, um, uh, and the, they did make some early releases last week. Um, so clearly there's an appetite to do something, whether that's enough, I, I think we, we won't, we won't know for a while yet, but, um, it's, it's part of the conversation. The environment minister expressed how, uh, alarmed she was at seeing those images. Um, I mean, the broader problem of course, is that we've like, we have com- completely changed that river system. You know, there are, uh, there are so many, uh, locks and weirs in the system, uh, people take massive amounts of water from the system upstream to grow um, to grow crops, um, uh, you know. But those changes started even before that, when you know, um, in in the 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 agricultural boom with with sheep farming, you know, so much of the vegetation was cleared around those around those rivers. So those changes started happening. Um, you know, uh, more more than a hundred years ago, um, mm. and and you know we, we've we're we're now at the point where we're we're trying to um, sort of on, on an ad hoc try and try and fix things that we sort of fundamentally um, changed, and that's that's always going to be a challenge because then you get you get all these competing interests, right? You get people who some people think the environment and the fish in the river and the health of the fish is is um, is very important. Some people uh, think it's less important. It's more important that we grow cotton, for example. Mm. Um, and there's that push and pull always that's now been created around the Murray-Darling Basin. Yeah, it seems like it's been more in favour of, you know, agriculture and producers uh, in recent years. I know it's a very hot topic of conversation, so we won't delve into the depths of that today. But um, let's jump into some of those other topics that I mentioned as well. And you've been attending, you know, a whole range of briefings from scientists about some very interesting studies that have come out. And as we've already given the caveat, depressing studies mm. as well. Uh, and one of the, you know, headlines, which has certainly grabbed my attention, was more than half of New South Wales forests uh, have been lost since 1750, aka before. Uh, British colonisation, and uh, that this kind of logging that still exists and land clearing is locking in 
uh, extinction in species, especially obviously those that are threatened at the moment. Um, you also go on to point out that this study shows that over a third of what is left of the forests and woodlands is degraded as well. Could you tell us about some of the detail mm. underneath the headline of this study, Graham, and what struck you? Yeah, so um, obviously logging is only one way that, that we degrade a forest. Um, and um, th this, this research, which I want to point out, um, has not yet been peer reviewed. It's 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 with a journal to be to be looked at, um, but uh, since 1750, um, land clearing for all sorts of things for our houses, for our um, to grow food, um, uh, has sort of impinged on those natural landscapes. And this study found that that we've lost. Um, about 29 million hectares. Um, now, that's an area that's bigger than New Zealand. Uh, now, that's a problem, right? Because mm. you then, for hundreds of threatened species, well, they're threatened now, they weren't in 1750, um, uh, for, for hundreds of threatened species, that, that creates problems. Um, there's less habitat, it fragments the places that they can go. Um, you know, we're just, uh, we, we have, uh, we've taken their homes away. Um, and if we care about threatened species, which I hope um, most of us do, um, then you're left with the question, well, what, what do we do? What can we do now? Uh, and one of the things that we continue to do to those, um, those places that are left, those habitats that are left, is um, log them. Uh, and this study finds that since 2000, since the year 2000, that logging had affected about... 200 the, the habitats of 244 threatened species um now um in some states um we've seen um in wa there's there's a the um, native forest logging uh is it, stopping yeah. um uh there's a phase out uh by 2030 um of native forest logging in um in victoria uh, but there is and has been no such conversation, um, at least between the two major parties in in New South Wales. Um, and so um, uh, this study looks to highlight the fact that we've already massively impacted threatened species. Um, if we want to uh, follow down this path of no new extinctions, which is the federal government's sort of pledge, then um, uh, they're asking the question, why do we continue to degrade the habitat um, with an industry that's um, that in other states is on its way out? Yeah. And, and you know, some of these some of these threatened species um, uh, you you'll, you might know basically how the threatened species system works. But but, you know, you've got a grading from um, uh, uh, endangered which is in the, the the higher risk end to to sort of vulnerable um now 104 of those 244 threatened species are either endangered or critically endangered which is you know you're one step away from extinction um and we're talking about things like long-footed potteroos um southern brown bandicoots koalas obviously southeastern glossy black cockatoos australian painted snipes and 
I've mentioned there six or seven. There's uh, there's there's more than a hundred uh, that are either endangered or critically endangered, um, and um, so this this study uh, this study is just pointing to that degradation. I, I, I should say uh, that um, the New South Wales state government's forestry corporation kind of quite strongly pushes back on that. Um, uh, the an, an issue though that we have is that. Um, the regional forest agreements that allow this the uh, logging to continue are uh, they're actually exempt from the the EPBC Act. Um, so if a forestry corporation wants to go in and 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 log the habitat of an endangered species, um, they don't root that. There's no engagement from the the federal environment minister on that. They can do that because they're they, they have an exemption. Um, uh, there's some, there has been some talk of trying to address that sort of ob obvious sort of loophole, if you want to call it that. Um, uh, but yeah, we have a, we have a real problem there in how that those policies interact with each other. Yeah, no, it's a, a fraught issue, not just in New South Wales, but as we've covered on this show in Victoria, even though they're phasing it out by 2030, there isn't really a slowdown in logging at the moment. It still seems to continue and in some areas where it shouldn't. So, yeah, it's a it's an issue across the whole nation, isn't it? But obviously a lot of different states making headlines for land clearing um, and, you know, Australia being a land clearing hotspot, yeah. which is uh, not one kind of thing you want to reputationally take to the United Nations, but it is literally the yeah, truth. And, yeah. And, and some of that land, a lot of that land clearing is, is for agriculture. It's not, it's not mm. logging, but the, 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 the other key point that these researchers were making, um, and, uh, some of these researchers are sort of a, um, at universities in Australia, they're Australian researchers. But the point they were making is that often we don't think about like the cumulative effect that that species have have felt. We kind of take decisions in isolation uh, instead of going well. Okay, if you want to take 0.1 percent or 1 percent of this habitat, then that sounds like a small number. But if already since European invasion, we've we've had these huge impacts on these species, then every tiny little bit that's left matters. And mm. that's that's a key point that they were trying to make. Yeah, it's a great point. And it, it definitely shifts the balance out of proportion in so many different ecosystems. Um, let's talk about another threatened species issue, which goes to our oceans. And it's mm. a fascinating study because it does involve citizen scientists as divers. And uh, this is out through the University of Tasmania, the study's lead author, Professor Graham Edgar, has been doing great work involving citizen scientists over a number of years, and they've managed to build up such an amazing uh, database of, you know, statistics around a whole range of species in the marine areas, uh, especially those reef-type areas in Australia. Yeah. Could you tell us what the study has shown and what what it's found, the type of data it's provided us? Yeah, yeah. So that that's right. So what th this study used mainly, um, but not entirely, um, the data from these. They're mainly volunteer scientists, um, and they work uh, they work for a project called uh, Reef Life Survey. Um, uh, but what they've uh, what they've looked at 
um, alongside some um, data from the Australian Institute of Marine Science that does long-term monitoring on the Great Barrier Reef, what they 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 look at uh, about one just over a thousand common species. So these are the because they're common, that means they they play an important role because they're they're everywhere. Uh, they're not everywhere anymore, though. The study finds that about 57% of these 1,057 species, 57% of them had declined in number. Uh, and almost 300 of those species were declining at a rate that if you were going to talk about whether they qualify as a threatened species, they're declining at a rate that suggests they would. Um uh, so 28% of them had suffered drops of 30% or more, and this is in only a decade. Um, and a lot of that damage uh, is occurring in the cooler, um, the temperate waters around Australia. So we do have reefs there. They're just not coral-dominated reefs. They're like they're rocky reefs, and and in where coral dominates, sort of those those the tropical reefs. Um, uh, they're like they're everything that the habitat is built around. On these rocky reefs, the habitat tends to be built around kelp. Um, and they find that, this, the, the researchers find that the loss of that kelp, which uh, um, uh, comes m mostly from changing water temperatures, that the loss of that kelp sees the knock-on effect of uh, loss in a lot of these species. Um, we've seen these marine heat waves that have gone through um, the, the kelp forests off Tasmania, for example, and wiped them out, you know, within a few years. Um, and uh, the same goes on all around the, the, the southern, they call it, the, they, have, they have a name for it, it's collectively known as the Great Southern Reef, but it's all these sort of rocky um, kelp-dominated reefs um, uh, in, in, in our southern waters off our continent. Um, and so the declines like that in such a short space of time, they say, are kind of really worrying because mainly because they're, they're only looking, for example, they're looking at only, huh, I say only, <laughs> 1,000 species, but these are common species. Mm. So what's happening to all the other ones? Um, what kind of a knock-on effects are we seeing? Um, Graham Edgar, Professor Graham Edgar, as you said, this the marine ecologist at the University of Tasmania, who was the lead author on this study, appeared in Nature, um, you know, one of the most prestigious journals in the world. Um, uh, you know, he, he says, he told me he'd been uh, diving in these places for 30 years and uh, he, he's seeing these declines um, with his own eyes. Uh, he, his worry is that we might be seeing species, or in, in this case, not seeing species go extinct before we've re even really found out what they are or where they are or how important they might be. Um, so the, the change, the rate of change in these places um, is uh, is really sort of quite remarkable. Um, and the science almost can't keep up with it. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's so great that they are doing that work and Obviously, it's really excellent scientific work, as you point out. It's very um, highly regarded. We're running out of time, Graham, so I'm just thinking about prioritising topics for the last three minutes or so. Everything is bad. How's that? Every, as a yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Um, I was just thinking, because I saw it in the news and it reminded me of our last chat um, about Myrtle Rust and I saw that it has returned to Lord Howe Island and I know you haven't yet written a piece on that development, but you have written about Myrtle Rust and its um, yeah, issue um, in the WA yeah. Kimberley. So maybe we might finish on that one. Yeah, uh, I mean, Myrtle Rust is... Um, uh, is uh, is a huge problem. It's this invasive pathogen um, came in in the New South Wales nursery. It affects um, uh, uh, plant species in the Matasi family. So that's that, that's that that's the the biggest family of of trees in Australia, um, uh, and uh, it's extremely extremely difficult to to control. Um, and yeah, it's now pretty much everywhere except South Australia. Um, uh, that there were concerns about the Kimberley. And where it gets in, it's difficult to do anything about it. Um, so uh, the the measures that the scientists have been taking are really to sort of start to collect um, to collect seeds, um, uh, and in the hope that they can keep some of the species that are um, at risk of becoming extinct, um, that they can keep those species going until they kind of do work out but what are the things that we can do to prevent this pathogen from spreading you know it it, it spreads it, it spreads in the air it spreads it has spread in australia very very quickly um as there's, there's concerns about dozens of plant species um it, it's likely sent already sent one quite widespread species the native guava probably to extinction um that guava used to do a really good job at uh, you know when you got a disturbance like a storm or whatever that goes through somewhere and clears a little bit of area they they kind of do those guava used to do really well at filling the gaps in um but without the guava then you you open an opportunity for things like lantana which is mm-hmm. um which is we don't want to see and that, that can kind of start to completely kind of reshape the ecosystems there um so yes um uh, you're right i haven't I, I haven't written about that that most recent development but sort of broadly um yeah there's big concerns whenever whenever uh, myrtle rust gets in um it's an emerging story i've been writing about it for years um and it's at this stage difficult to know difficult to know what they can do about it um yeah. but it's yeah r- really really worrying i actually collected um I, I was out with a uh with a scientist a few years ago and and we saw some of the last sort of um native guava um he sort of grabbed some of the seeds and flowers and gave them to me and said, there you go, you may be the last person to collect a flowering native guava. I hope I wasn't, but it wow. looks like I might have been. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's um, you know, re- really concerning. The, plant, the, the things that always get our attention, right, are the, mm. fluffy, is the fluffy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, you know, rightly. Um, but also, you know, we, we forget that these plants, they go through, they have an evolutionary cycle of uh, sort of millions of years. They've been working hard, these species, to get where they are today over millions of years. Uh, and to see them sort of snuffed out over the course of a few decades because of an invasive pathogen is kind of, there's something like, I think we could probably have a long philosophical chat about that. Yeah, for sure. Graham, thank you so much for bringing us what is very depressing but important news. And you're doing a phenomenal job doing it and I, and if people want to find all the things you have been reporting on just check uh into your search bar 
Graham Redfern, Guardian Australia, and you'll see his profile with all of his reporting. Thank you so much, Graham, for your time today. I uh, really thanks, appreciate Amy. it. I've just been speaking with Graham Redfern from The Guardian who reports on all things the environment. Thank you to all my other guests today, Nick Ficon, the Safeguard Mechanism and Carbon Credits, as well as those two brilliant women, Sophia and Sophie, uh, for talking about Piano Day. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.